welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another podcast. Kind of setting a standard here, getting uh, another podcast done within a few days of the last several that I did. But um, as you guys knew, I asked several of you some questions about things that you wanted to hear about. And I still had about a page and a half here of different topics that I wanted to keep going with. So I'm going to give you guys this podcast for this week. And hopefully it'll get you through, uh, if nothing else, another Monday drive to work. So uh, the first question here is going to be from Sean Perry. And he would like me to talk about aiming. And uh, he says, cover your spot or hold um, at 6 o'clock. You know, he's kind of asking, which do I do or which do I prefer people do? Um, He says he cannot cover the spot uh holds at six o'clock on the spot and everything seems okay uh, but just cannot cover the spot and that is a super common problem for people um you know everybody seems like everybody can hold like a rock right off their aiming spot but i guess the real question is how do you learn to actually hold on what you're aiming at and you know there's a couple things to that you know one I think um, you know people that put too much emphasis on holding perfectly still um, I know that it's important and I know that you need to be steady however I do believe that your brain naturally likes to have some of that movement just for confirmation purposes and that's why if you are a shooter or you do learn to overcome target panic and you do learn to start covering your spot or at least be able to put your pin on your spot I believe that the reason why a lot of people work towards trying to find that surprise shot and they get to the point where they're able to actually hold their pin on their target and go through their release until they get a surprise shot. A lot of people um, or students that I'm working with, they'll say, yeah, everything's great. My my shot is perfect. And actually, I'm working with a guy right now that told me the same thing. He said, I feel like everything's really good, but I just don't feel like I hold as steady um, as I used to the other way that I shot. And once you get to the point where you can cover your target, your mind wants a confirmation that what you're telling it to hit is still there. And if you're covering it completely with your spot, then a lot of times what happens is your mind kind of ends up wanting to wants to confirm that what you're telling it to hit is still back there so I think some of that movement is just your subconscious wanting to kind of peek at that target 
and just barely see that it's still there. So like me, if I took my pen and I completely cover a target, a lot of times I'm not sitting perfectly still. My pen is just moving enough to where I can see a little bit of that gold or a little bit of that X-ring on one side or another of my pen. It, you know, it floats off and then as soon as I can see it, it naturally goes back. So, you know, I think your brain saying, well, I want to, I don't believe you. I want to see that it's still there. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's there. So it'll move it back. And that's just a natural tendency that you start to do. And that's why if you are the type of person that shoots an aiming device that fully covers like the whole spot, um, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to cover that spot completely because really you're mentally striving to make a perfect shot. You're wanting to cover the target. You know that you need to be on the target to go through that shot. But the more of it you cover, the harder it is to really pick an exact spot. And if you're floating around and your brain is confirming, is what I call it, um, you'll tend to have to move a little bit further just to get that confirmation. So, you know, I liked, I always liked shooting a dot that was bigger than the X-ring um, and about the size of the 10 ring, but not one that covered the whole gold on like a feet of face or like on a, on a feet of field target. I liked a dot that was pretty much right in between the X ring and the 10 ring. Um, when I shot 3d, you know, I liked one. I liked one that was kind of the same, almost between a 12 ring, uh, in the 10 ring it got a little bit tough at times you know if you're really trying to aim super small like you know aiming at a 12 ring on a turkey but i think that's what makes 3d different is you really have to learn the targets well enough to where you're you're aiming in an area where you know you pretty much are aiming center to the area that you know that 12 ring is in um, you know, you would have to be shooting such a small dot to be able to actually aim inside of a 12 ring, um, unless you're shooting a lot of magnification. And this actually kind of ties in to another question um, that I had here from Steve Snyder, because he was asking um, that he just shot his first ever field event using his 3D setup, which was a one and five eighths scope with a pin. Um, and he just picked up a slightly smaller scope and wanted to know what my suggestions were for, for an aiming dot. So um, just to talk about this, because both of these are related. When I shot FIDA or when I shot FIDA field, um, I always shot a black sticker dot um, like I said the size would be between the X ring and the 10 ring and then what I would do is I would take a, a needle and I would dab it in some hobby white hobby paint and then I would touch the, um, that needle right in the dead center of that black dot and I would get an even smaller white dot right in the center 
And this is something that I learned from another archer that was a great field shooter. And it was a dot that I really grew in love with because what happens is when you have lighting coming at you from the front, your pins are always, you know, it seems like if you have a, a sticker on your scope, they're almost dark. Whereas when you have lighting coming at you from the back, that black dot would almost look different. And I would find that my, I would almost, my mind would almost aim slightly different. You know, for those of you out there who find, uh, and maybe you haven't really connected them, but what I found is when I have very strong lighting coming into my peep from the side, it'll slightly change my left and rights. And then when I have uh, lighting straight in front of me or straight behind me, you know, one of them will illuminate the target better. One of them illuminate your, your dot better. And by having that black and white, if you have lighting behind you or coming down the side of you, then that white dot really pops. And you see that white dot really good. Whereas if you have a lot of lighting straight behind the target and the light's almost coming at you in your face, then you're still able to see that black dot. Um, I like... I always liked the white dots. I used to shoot a very small fiber with a white tip on it. I could see it pretty good. Um, but sometimes, like I said, if that light was straight behind the target, it made it really difficult. Um, but that is the spot that served me really, really well. When I shot 3D, I was a big fan of um, the lenses that had the fiber optics right in the center. And, you know, I would shoot a 19,000s fiber right in the center of the lens. That was always my favorite. And I know a lot of people went to different pins and everything else where they could they could see uh, or have the electronics to illuminate, illuminate their pin. But I was just never a fan of a really bright pin. Um, I just, my method of aiming is really looking at the target. Um, more than my pin. I kind of let my pin float around in my subconscious and a lot of times it's blurry. It's not totally in focus because my focus is really downrange. So I always like to shoot a three or four power lens um, for anything other than indoors just so that I could use a peep without a clarifier or verifier and still be able to have a really clear image. Um, and I've always used the 29 millimeter Sherlock Black Eagles for uh, FIDA or for indoor. I would use a, uh, a six power. Uh, but if I was outdoor for like FIDA or field, I would normally use a four, which would be a 0.55 diopter. Um, indoors, I would, you know, I'd use that next, the next power diopter. Um, and then if I did shoot 3D, I would normally shoot a slightly bigger scope housing just so that I could see a little bit more of the target. Um, but to go back to that initial question, if you're holding really, really solid underneath and you want to get to the point of being able to cover the target, then kind of an, a next step to take that's fairly easy is to you know do what Jesse Broadwater did and that was 
you know, have a small part of your lens in the center that is the only part you can see through, which pretty much forces you to learn to look through the center or past the center of your pin to look at the target. If you do what he did, which was he shot a lens that was completely frosted other than the small spot in the middle where he could look through it and just pretty much look at the aiming dot or the spot where he needed to hit, he would look through that part of the lens only in the center. It teaches you to do that. You look at a lot of the Olympic-style recurve shooters, and they're mainly shooting like hoops where they just look through the center of that metal ring and put the target in the center. Your mind naturally likes to center things. It's just, you know, it's it's part of one of the things that your mind kind of naturally does as an OCD. It, it just, if there's circles and circles, it just kind of aligns the circles, you know, and um, that's a great way at least to do some training if you really struggle getting your pin on the target is to actually start shooting some type of a hoop or ring where you're looking right through it and I did that for a long time to cure my target panic it wasn't I definitely didn't really enjoy it for a tournament I didn't really trust it in a tournament to be honest with you but it was something that I worked on during the non-tournament times to try to get myself a lot more comfortable with having my pin completely on the target and for those of you who have read some of my articles um, you've probably heard me in the past talk about you know I really believe that people are afraid to hit the target more so than afraid to miss because this is a perfect example if you were afraid to miss then you would be the exact opposite you would you would have your pin on the center of the target and it would make you more uncomfortable if you weren't you know if every time you moved off the center of the target when you're afraid to hit then you're never on the center you're always off the center I mean you're literally setting yourself up to not hit the center of the target Um, I remember vividly the first time I was able to draw my bow back put my pin on the target and just pull through my release until that shot broke and I remember like it was yesterday I had a red fiber optic pin in a super scope and I was aiming at a McKenzie deer target and it was 40 yards and I remember I was shooting indoors it was really good lighting on the target and I was sitting there forcing myself to do this very thing to try to overcome my target panic. And it was when I was learning to shoot um, a Carter Revenger release that Randy Ulmer gave me. And I remember that was the first time that I drew back. I didn't have any tremors in my front arm. I didn't have any anxiety going through my mind. All I did was put my pin right in the center of that 12 ring and just looked at that perfect eclipse of the 12 ring around my pin and I just sat there and just continued to hold the pressure against the back wall of my cam and just relax my finger and I was just literally staring a hole straight through that 12 ring 
and my shot broke and it literally tick-tocked right to the dead center of that 12 ring and that is a mental image that I carry with me for life now uh, it's the first time that I ever made a perfectly flawless shot where I I know that I did everything that I needed to now you know back in the day like Burley Hall he really struggled with this a lot of 3d shooters did back in those days most of them shot high speeds they shot caliper releases and a lot of people were classic lift and punch type guys and it catches up to you and I know that like Burley Hall he had what was called Burley yardage so he pretty much sighted his bow in to where when he froze under the target um, as long as the 12 ring was right over the top edge of his pin he would shoot um, it's a lot like I guess a pistol shooter you know where you set your target on top of the dots um, my belief though is if you start to give yourself those little handicaps like that then inevitably what happens is you start to freeze and you start to develop those anxieties and the target panic and having a lift and punch so you really have to back up and make a commitment to learning to shoot a stress-free and shoot a shot without anticipating that that going off um a good way to work on it and get yourself comfortable with it is shoot a, a really big bullseye. Or shoot it close. A lot of guys get in the habit of freezing when they're trying to shoot really small spots at longer distances. You know, I think it's important that when you're practicing, you keep your spots consistently bigger as you go further away. You know, that's what's nice about shooting field is at each distance that target face gets larger so proportionally you're still looking at that same type of sight picture in your lens and that really does help build positive confirmation in your mind of being able to keep your pin in the center because when you're shooting really small objects at longer distances you really start to see how much you're off that target and it slowly starts to build on you and you try to you try to get solid and you try to stiffen up and you try to solidify you try to aim more and the more you do that the more you start to compress that front end and get really tight and everything in your form tightens up in order for you to try to get that pin to settle down a little bit you know you can still shoot a super big uh, pin or you can shoot a really big face um, as long as you'll learn as long as you're in the center of that even if you can't see the X ring around your pin uh, your arrows will still go in the dead center you know I look back at the days when like a lot of the 3D shooters uh, started going away from lenses because a lot of the ranges were really really dark and you'd see guys going out there with no lens shooting a you know 19 or 29 thousandths up pin and you know shooting on ranges that averaged in the mid 40s for yardage and shooting unbelievable scores and 
technically their pin was probably the size of the whole 10 ring at that distance but again they knew where the 12 ring was they were aiming for the center of that object and literally learning to put the the 12 ring directly behind the center of their pin and I think you'll find that if you do start to do that even if you have a little bit more movement you learn to accept that you're going to have way more arrows in the center because again your mind is just wanting confirmation that what you're telling it to hit and what you're covering up is still there it's kind of like the peekaboo game you know if uh and i do this all the time with my dog if my dog's looking at me and i like even if i put a piece of paper up to where my dog can't see my eyes she goes nuts and starts freaking out so you know it's the same thing with your mind and your pin in the spot that you want when you're covering it don't be worried about the fact that you might have a little bit of movement because your brain is just wanting to see that what you're telling it to hit is still back there uh, the next question here is from brad iverson and uh let's see well should have read this beforehand brad uh, he's asking if I know any scuttlebutt or rumors and if I'm willing or able to share what's going to be slick about the 2016 lineup of Hoyts. So, yes, I know some scuttlebutt and no, I'm not willing or able to help you right now. But um, I will say, as always, it's worth the wait. Um, I think everybody will be happy. So, uh, and normally that's mid-October. So we're halfway there, everybody. Um, let me take a quick sip of my morning Joe here. It is 4:30 in the morning. I do love my coffee. Um, okay, next question here is from Robbie Ward, and Robbie's saying, please talk about your routine for judging yardage. Um, and any help or advice you can give regarding this subject would be appreciated. So back when I judged, and on one of the earlier podcasts, um, Dan McCarthy and, and I talked about this, and I think on another one I did with, with uh, Jeff, we talked about this as well, because everyone has a slightly different setup or system. And really, my system played into what I did and what I practiced a lot you know everybody's slightly different and some people their natural trade or things they've done in the past helps them a little bit in at least getting landmarks or you know I call them landmarks but to get a certain distance established to really help you out um, my first go-to method was I would like to just look at the ground and I would go in 10-yard increments just because um, I was a quarterback. I played football a lot. I was always on a football field uh, leading up to when I went pro as an archer because I actually left collegiate sports to, to shoot my bow. So... Um, I was really familiar with like first and 10. I was all, I could always find the 10s. So I would just find my 10s 
and stack them and I would you know get to the point where you know it's kind of for me it's kind of easy to fine tune after that now obviously the further you get away the a little bit harder it is um, I would struggle once things got to especially if a target ever got pushed past 50 I would I would definitely have my days where I would misjudge um, a target here or there uh, one thing that I will say is learning to shoot field archery really helped my judging because you know there was a few times where I went and shot some 3d tournaments while I was mainly focused on target and I was still really good at judging simply because when you're shooting a field range it's almost like shooting a marked 3d course you just really get in the habit of learning those distances and when I practiced I owned my own you know I invested in my own range uh, which I think is critical. You have to invest in what you're going to be shooting at these tournaments. You know, you have to if you if you can't buy all the targets yourself, you have to invest in finding a range or a club or finding a group of friends to where you can because that the people that are on top are doing that. I mean, and there's no easy way around that unless you're just totally natural. Like Dave Stepp was a natural judging person. He could judge distance phenomenally, and especially with the limitations to what he had to actually look at targets, um, he just didn't have them out there. But he would still show up and probably had, you know, his his career during a few of those years was, you know, to go down in the history books. It was banner years where you just he almost could win every single tournament he went to and didn't have any targets at home to go by um so you kind of if uh like i remember bobby catcher he he used to do like surveying he surveyed land so he would just practice during his job finding his 20 and you know and just work on that distance and what i can tell you is um i practiced every day with my rangefinder i would judge the target first and i would pretty much get my best guess then i would uh, range it and know what the actual distance is and then i would actually shoot with my sight set on the real yardage not what i judged it for because I think it was critical to practice this way for several reasons. First being, I it, it doesn't do you any good mentally to go out and have bad practice days. You want to you wanna really know how you're shooting. And especially if you're shooting pretty good, you want to be able to go out and build that confirmation that you're capable of shooting really high scores on a range. That way... If you end up going out and having a banner day, you aren't going to end up psyching yourself out about how good you're shooting. So when I practice, I would judge. I would first use my 10-yard increments. Um, if that started to stump me, I would find the halfway mark. And once I found the halfway mark, I would judge to that halfway mark and double it. 
a lot of times that was my check. If mentally I was like, okay, I know this is about 43 yards, I would say, okay, where's 20? I would look. Uh, I would find 20. I would double that and kind of confirm it if it was right around 40 yards. But if it was, you know, a 50-yard shot or pushing that max, I would just try to find the halfway mark. And then I would judge to there, and if I ended up judging to there and thought, well, crap, that's only 20 yards or 22 yards, well, then I would really start having to look at everything again. Then my other fail-safe that I had was back then my vision was almost impeccable, and that's one thing that I really credit my shooting, early shooting with, um, it's starting to get a little bit worse now. It's still good. It's still 2020 now, but back then my vision was like 2010. Um, it, I could see, I could easily see 12 rings at 42 yards. And I knew that as soon as I started to not, if the target was completely lit with the sun and on like a mechan- anything that was brown, if I could not see the 12 ring or the rings in general clearly, then I knew that target was definitely over 42 yards. Just for safety, I would say I knew it was over 40. If, it, if I could see the rings, then I knew without a shadow of a doubt it was 40 yards or less. So I would kind of use that as my third... Uh, fail safe. I would normally judge the target, and if I thought, yeah, I think it's you know right around that that 43, 44 yard mark, then I would just go to that fail safe if it was in the sun, and I would just start staring at it, and I would do my best to make out the rings. And if I couldn't make out the rings, I would know, well, dang, it's definitely got to be right there. But then if I did that same thing. Maybe I judged it for 43, 44, and I just started staring at it and looking hard, and it's like, okay, well, I can blatantly see these rings. Well, then you know right off the bat, okay, well, I'm not going to be looking at these rings at 43 or 44 yards, so I need to re rethink this here. The other thing, too, is, you know, and I learned this as well in field shooting, you really learn a lot. Uh, There's a few archers that told me that they kind of had a few problems judging in some of the hills that were at the ASA shoot this past weekend. And looking back now, I don't even consider a lot of the 3D stuff that we shot even having a hill when I've shot the field ranges that I have across the world. Um the amount of cuts that you need is very minimal. Um, learning to judge the true distance, um, you know, could be a different thing, but you really aren't having that many shots where you're having to make a lot of cuts like what you would, you know, shooting from a tree stand, um, you know, or shooting on a, a severe slope, like on a field range. Um, but what I can tell you is, a lot of times when you're out there looking at these targets, if you spend some time looking at the holes on the targets, you can learn a lot. 
uh, you know, I've been to field courses where, you know, a lot of times I shot unmarked field courses. So you have to learn how to range and, and judge the faces. So, you know, a lot of times you can look at the faces and if all the arrow holes um, in it are high, then you know it's it can't be the bigger face where people are shooting it for the max. It might be that next face down that just looks it looks far because it's this it's actually the smaller size face at the maximum distance instead of the bigger face at the maximum distance. And the same thing's true with 3D uh, 3D targets. You know, there were times I would step up to a target. I look at and I think, well, that thing's 50 yards or 49 yards, uh, you know, definitely 49. And then I look at it with my binoculars and I realize, okay, there's a high majority to hole of holes that are above the center line on this target. Uh, if that's the case, well, you know that most everybody is looking at it for that same distance, but they're shooting it high. So then you either have to re-guess or, you know, try to, to do your best to see what the other people in front of you do. You know, if the guy in front of you in that group all of a sudden shoots one up in the back, well, you know, he probably just misjudged it as well. So look at the holes, and they can give you a little bit of a hint, you know, if everybody's low. And that goes the same for shooting in the wind, too. If you're ever out on a course where you have a, have a real good crosswind, a lot of the people are shooting setups that are very similar. So if the majority of the holes are all, you know, an inch behind the 10 ring, then you know that there's a pretty good crosswind coming through there. So you at least need to aim for sure on the right edge of that 10 because if everyone else is drifting out, uh, you need to learn from their mistakes. The one thing I will say, though, is I did use that method as my last thing that I did if you go up to the target and get in the habit of trying to look for that stuff right away you'll end up talking yourself into a yardage you know if you pull up your binoculars and you look down there and everybody's low well, then you're going to be like well it's over max it's definitely over max because all the arrow holes are low but you, you need to look at it first because you know a lot of people could have been judging it for 45 instead of 50 so do your best to get your judge first and then start looking for those little things like that that can help you um, the other thing too is you know I always I would when I had my range and I know Jeff is the same way um, I had a neighbor that always wanted to shoot on my targets as well so the deal that I made with them is they could come shoot the targets, but anytime they came, they had to move the targets after they shot them to a new location. So every few days, my course was consistently changing. So I was always having to judge new targets, and I think that makes a big, big difference. But having my rangefinder with me all the time to where I judge, um, and I would use that rangefinder to also learn the exact things that I said that I do. Um, so, for example, if I went up to a target, I judged it for 45, and the target was 49, then what I would do is I'd say, okay, well, where's the halfway mark? 
you know, obviously I misjudged this four or five yards. I can't have that. So I would find the halfway mark, what I thought the halfway mark would be. And I would range that and get a true reading. And I'd say, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's not, that's, that wasn't 25, you know, or that wasn't 21, that was 25. Um, you start to do that, or I'd say, well, okay, well, where's my, I thought that was 10, I thought that was 20, I would range that, you know, whatever I thought was 20, oh, okay, well, that was 22, and so the next one that I judged was 33, and you slowly start to, you know, if you have that range finder with you, it's not just about ranging the one target, I would probably get practice in estimating four or five objects not just the target but all my steps my halfway points uh, my 10 increments all those things i would i would practice on by getting that confirmation and again i would always shoot knowing the distance so that i could make sure that one my sight tape was correct and then i also wanted to have a real good judge of character on how I was actually performing and how I was actually shooting. Um, let's see. I've got another. I think this might still be Robbie's question. Um, says, I listen to your podcast a lot and read about tuning online. I use this info and it made me better, but I want to help my buddies also make them better. Um, but he seems he can't get into their head. Um, he asks them, what is their dot doing? Obviously, he's trying to help these guys. And when he asks them, you know, what was their dot doing, they really don't know. Or if he asks them if their draw length feels good, he said they really have a hard time answering. So he's kind of asking some tips and tricks about helping people, um, you know, set up a bow and, and coaching them a little bit. Well, in regards to that, you know, a lot of times you just have to understand that most people don't know what's going on. Um, so what you have to do is you have to tell them what they need to do. And if you do that each and every time, they'll, they'll probably slowly start to feel that. And the other thing, too, is, you know, when you're working with people and coaching them, it's all about, for me, having photos because most people have a different perception of how they look when they're shooting. You know, you look at people that there's times where some of you will message me on Facebook and I'll look at your profile picture and the, you know, your shooting form may be god awful, uh, but. Obviously, you've got it up on the, your page, so you think that it looks awesome. So, um, you know, you don't see that as being a problem. You know, I see it as a problem because I strive for perfect form, and that's what I coach, and that's what I do. And most people, you know, they come, and or if, or if I see someone and I just offer help, and I'll kind of tell them, okay, can I fix you a little bit because here's what you're doing, they just say, well, I never knew, and I mean, I think this, I think that's true because I look at pictures of myself shooting uh, twenty years ago when I started shooting professionally, and holy cow, 
I was, you know, I had a, I was overdrawn. I had my hip was cocked back. I was shooting a caliper release, anchoring too low, had, you know, pressure on my face. I mean, there was 10 things I was doing that I definitely wouldn't do that way right now, but I never knew any better, you know, until people like the Chapel Brothers and the Coddles and the Burley Halls and the Almers kind of slowly started giving me all these little bits of advice or a lot of times with some of the really good guys, you know, you'd have to ask them uh, why you're doing this or why you're doing that. And the nice ones would tell you. Sometimes the other ones, well, sometimes people would tell you something different just to try to mess you up if they knew they were competing against you. Um, But I always told myself, you know, like when Randy Ulmer helped me, um, I told myself, you know, I want to make sure that that's the type of pro that I'm going to be. As I learn, I want to be able to pass that on. And that's, again, that's what the whole basis to everything that I'm doing is. Um, you know, it's funny, the people that, uh, that help and the people that, you know, are kind of really focusing on promoting everything else rather than promoting themselves. It's amazing that, you know, the word doesn't spread as fast. Um, I've always liked the people better that, focus on promoting the sport instead of promoting themselves uh but it does seem that you know the word about people that are you know trying to do this kind of thing it certainly doesn't spread as fast as as the people that self-promote but um i guess for me i know that i sleep a heck of a lot better at night knowing that um that i've got great friends out there that i've met through this podcasting and through Facebook people that you know just kind of literally came to me out of desperation of I really want to get better and I'm struggling with this can you help me and if I have the time which that's the only downside to what I'm doing is having the time for all you guys I wish that I could Um, but I'm trying to juggle so much right now but when I do have the time to sit down and do this it's really what I enjoy the most and what gives me the most satisfaction as a person and as an archer uh, being able to do this and you know 3 3 a.m alarm clocks uh, so I can answer emails and and do podcasts does slowly start to wear you down it's like having a turkey season the whole year for getting up that early but Um, in the end when I see everybody out there sharing these podcasts and I see people sending pictures of the results of them genuinely getting better because of things that they hear on here well crap uh, it's well worth it it's uh, being tired and having another cup of coffee to be able to get that done uh, just seems like a cheap investment for me so I appreciate everyone out there who's been patient with this stuff and sometimes when I have to take a month to answer someone back I apologize about that but it just all comes down to schedule priority um next question here is from Cole Kappel I believe and he's saying uh, really wants to hear about limb savers are they for real yes they're real I've 
seen them. They are completely real. But uh, I guess in regards to what you're asking, I don't know if there's claims being made about them. Um, They definitely help minimize vibration and noise, um, which I'm a big fan of having a quiet hunting setup. Um, I've shot limb savers on different things that I've had for many, many years. I've got some of them on my guns and and they're um, really good people. Alan and Steve are good people that I actually met in 3D years ago. Um, and this is actually kind of a cool little story. Um, they sponsored, the way I got to know these guys was they were actually sponsoring um, an exploding target at the ASA in, in Florida. And they had a, a target at an unknown distance with a shotgun primer in the dead center of the 12 ring and that shot and then they filled some of the target up with black powder so they had a thing where anybody that could hit that uh could hit that primer and make the target blow would get i think it was like 250 bucks and a full sponsorship of product with sims so I just kind of walked by it. I typically don't really partake in novelty-type shoots, especially when I'm at a tournament. I just don't like shooting things that are bobbing around or swinging around. or you know, I don't like going out and shooting at crazy targets and missing and kind of wrecking my whole mental vibe that I got going on. So I had walked by it for a day, but everyone on the on the range was talking about have you seen this you know have you shot the target do you see that target and um i kind of said well i hadn't but maybe i'll go try it so i went over there and i was actually there with dave step and rod white and i looked at it and i forget what it is i've got the picture here behind me i think it was at like 96 yards is what it ended up being and I judged it for 96 yards and pulled back and uh, there was probably a hundred arrows in that target it was actually a um, a Reinhardt Velociraptor and I pulled back and um, the shotgun primer was right in the center of a one inch orange dot and all I know is my 19,000 screen fiber optic I could not see any part of that orange dot not a single drop of it when my shot went off and I kind of turned when my shot went off I kind of turned back to say that's it and I got about half of a word out my mouth and all of a sudden boom and I turned around and saw you know this huge six foot mushroom cloud coming out of there and and uh, there's quite a bit of an excitement that I shot that thing and for a little bit until everyone that had shot it at it before me went down there and realized that there's about 30 arrows blown in two. So everyone that lost their arrows for this novelty shoot wasn't really happy. But um, Alan came running over and asked, you know, who, who shot this? Who shot this? And, you know, well, Dudley did. So... He kind of high-fived me, and he said, he's like, dude, that's amazing. And I said, 
I said, well, it's easy now because we know the distance. And he's like, well, you can't surely can't hit it again. I said, well, I know I can hit it again because I said my pin was exactly on that dot. And he said, if you hit it again, I'll give you 500 bucks. So we ended up putting it up again, and I shot it again, and that's the one I got my picture of. Uh, I got my picture with the target. Um, maybe I'll post that actually so you guys can see it. Um, I'll post that with the link to this podcast on my Facebook page on either the John Dudley page or the knock on TV page. But, uh, that's how I got to meet these guys. And at the time, all they had was the original limb saver. And so I, I got to, to see several different products through these guys and, different products that they make for Hoyt and um you know they had limb savers on there for a long time and string leeches and um it's a good technology uh I never really shot their bows but I do know that um I use their little limb savers actually on my limbs for my fall away rests and um you know I do use their string leeches at times uh the new limb savers that go on the limbs are really nice uh but i shoot on my hoits and with you know i have air shocks on my hoits so i really don't shoot those original limb savers anymore but like on my recurve bows i would shoot them um and i've used the small ones on my sights so it's a great product and they're really good people and if any of you out there know steve or alan make sure that you tell them i said hi i haven't got to talk to him in a long time so Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this podcast up. We're about halfway through these other questions, so I'll probably get another one going here pretty quick. And hopefully uh, over the course of this week, we'll be able to get through all these questions that you guys ask. So thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure you spread the word for me, guys uh, and gals. Just do everything that you can to help promote the Knock On Podcasts. And, you know, this is my way of being able to give you guys the type of information that a lot of times that I'm writing about anyway, but the magazines kind of retain rights to a lot of that stuff. So this is my way of being able to talk with all of you and answer what you need to answer. So appreciate everybody. Have a good week. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com